Today's passage might actually uh, have you lose sleep. Because it is not going to hit you on a moral level or a philosophical level. But it's going to hit you on a theological level. Okay. <clears throat> this passage is a very difficult one. Uh, because it seems to contradict God's very attribute. And so we're going to defend God's holy attributes. But at the same time, what we're going to see as we defend God's attribute, we're going to also see uh, <clears throat> man's character, okay? man's nature. Okay? And so we're going to see these two attributes and natures juxtaposed to one another. As, uh, as the title hints, and then I'm going to conclude the sermon. And, and how can there be any reconciliation between these two opposing attributes? So last week, we established not only God's justice, but his sovereignty. That God is sovereign. And he does what he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases. Because that is the freedom he has in the position that he is in. Think much like a screenwriter. He has the freedom or she has the freedom to write whatever he or she wants for the play. No one is going to hold them account for what they have written down. It is their creative world. They do as they please. Likewise, God does as he pleases. That is his sovereignty. <clears throat> what we're going to see today is there's another attribute that will be at stake. His perfection. More specifically, his immutability. And you guys know in the theology proper, his immutability is the characteristic of him that, or that he does not change. God cannot and will not change. <clears throat> so we're going to see how we will defend God's holy attribute. When we read a story, when we come across a story where it seems to kind of contradict that. So where are we in chapter 22? Well, three years has passed since the war between uh, King Ben-Hadad of Syria, you guys remember him, and King uh, oh, Ahab, yes, King Ahab of Israel, okay? Remember, they fought in chapter 20. There was a break uh, from the king, uh, from Elijah, and in chapter 21, the previous chapter, it was uh, the story between King Ahab and Naboth. Now, in chapter 22, King Ben-Hadad will be reintroduced, 
Remember, King Ahab was supposed to kill King uh, Ben-Hadad of Syria, but he didn't. Disobeying the command of God. And so God would bring judgment upon King Ahab. And because he didn't kill King Ben-Hadad, this Syrian king would come up to be a thorn on his side. So that was three years ago. Now what has happened till then? Well, there was a treaty that took place between King Ahab and King Ben-Hadad. For allowing Ben-Hadad to live, King Ahab said that he will have the territories that Ben-Hadad took over Israel and that King Ben-Hadad would give it back in good faith. And one of the, the, the territories that King Ben-Hadad took was one that King Ahab desperately wanted back. And in chapter 22, it is a battle for that piece of land. And that piece of land is called Ramoth-Gilead. King Ahab knows how powerful King Ben-Hadad is. Though he prevailed over him once, he does not want to underestimate his power. And so who does he call uh, for help? He calls the king of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, King Jehoshaphat. Now, King Jehoshaphat, we're actually going to see in 2 Kings. King Jehoshaphat, unlike King Ahab, was a godly king. Yes, he did mess up many times in his life. And he messed up a lot, actually, in this chapter. But overall, he was a godly king. A king who feared the Lord, sought after the Lord. And when he took over the throne from his father, he broke down all the high places of, of idol worship in his land. King Ahab calls for the aid of King Jehoshaphat to, to join forces to fight against King Ben-Hadad because King Ben-Hadad was not keeping his end of the bargain. King Ahab let him live. He should have give, given back King Ahab the pieces of land that he took from Israel, but he didn't. King Ahab gets antsy. And we see the judgment of God will fall upon him real soon. Now let me read for you guys <clears throat> verse 3 of chapter 22. It says, the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Talk about an unwise move. 
coming from a godly man. Jehoshaphat was a godly king. And he knew Ahab's reputation. King Ahab was a man of no honor. And yet Jehoshaphat agreed to fight alongside this king. What is going through Jehoshaphat's mind? Why would he agree to fight such a futile war and align himself with an ungodly king like King Ahab? That has sparked the curiosity of many commentators and scholars. But we believe it's most likely due to national pride. What he's saying here to King Ahab is, hey, you are my fellow Israelite. Okay. Even though there is a divide, you are still my brethren. When he says your people are my people, we share the same blood. We are both God's chosen people. And so Jehoshaphat, putting national pride over his, his position with God. But you can see, even though he makes an unwise move, where his heart lies. Because he says to the king of Israel, verse 5, inquire first for the word of the Lord. So King Jehoshaphat says, okay, I agree. I want to fight with you, brother. But before we do that, let's inquire the Lord. You could tell which one had a relationship with the God of Israel. To inquire God before going into battle. And so King Ahab gathers for himself prophets. And it says about 400 men. Now, we're going to see later that these prophets were most likely not the prophets of God. You see, remember when the split happened, King Jeroboam of the north, he set up high places for idol worship. One, one of the key being the, the golden calf worship in Dan and Bethel in the northern region. And many... Uh, biblical historians believe that these prophets were those prophets. The prophets of the golden calf. Not from God. These were not prophets of Yahweh. And they said, go up for the Lord will give it, to, will give it into the hand of the king. So what are the 400 prophets saying? They're speaking in one voice, saying, victory is yours. Victory is yours, O king. But listen to what Jehoshaphat says in response to their oracle. Verse 7, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? You see, Jehoshaphat can recognize a counterfeit when he sees one. You see, Jehoshaphat, when he was reigning, 
in the southern kingdom communicated very well with true prophets of God. So he knows what a true prophet sounds like. And those 400 prophets, they don't sound like prophets of Yahweh. Which is why he says to King Ahab, there, there has to be someone else, a real prophet of God. Many of us here, how can we recognize a false prophet? We familiarize ourselves with the truth. When you know the truth, you will know a lie. And it, the lie will stick out like a sore thumb. Jehoshaphat recognized this. And the king of Israel said to Je Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Oh, yeah, there is this one prophet. Not Elijah. We don't know where Elijah is during this time. Most likely, Ahab could not stand Elijah. So Elijah is, is, is out of the kingdom. There is another prophet of God, a godly one by the name of Micaiah. He is introduced here for the first time in the, the last chapter of 1 Kings. We do not know much about this prophet except that he does speak the words of God. And King Ahab, as he has stated, hates this prophet because this prophet speaks only judgment against King Ahab. You know those people who tell me, oh, I, I hate police officers, I hate them. I cannot help but to wonder, well, why? Maybe they're not the problem, but maybe it's you, okay? Are you not listening to, the, you know, the police officers? Are you committing crimes? It's usually the criminals who say those things. King Ahab was living such a, a life of sin that all he would hear from God was rebuke. There was nothing good for God to say to King Ahab. So of course he would hear nothing but rebuke. And so Micaiah was that mouthpiece of God delivering that bad message to King Ahab. So the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. We believe that Micaiah was actually imprisoned. Okay, he's in, he, he is in prison right now during this time. Because Ahab despises this prophet of God so much but cannot get rid of him. He just keeps him in jail. And so he tells his servants bring him to me. Now the messenger summons Micaiah. And this messenger, what does he tell Micaiah before Micaiah is presented to the king? He tells him, hey, tell the king, 
pretty much what all the other prophets are saying. That victory is his. Just tell him that. Okay? Just tell the king good news for once. And I love how Micaiah responds. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. So profound. Isn't that our duty as believers in Jesus Christ? What the Lord says, that we will speak. When we preach the gospel, when we evangelize, we share nothing but the word of truth. Only what the Lord speaks shall I deliver. They may rub people the wrong way. People may hate you. But truth is truth. And we must speak it. For we are children of truth. Now, very interesting exchange between Prophet Micaiah and King Ahab now. So King Ahab is, is, is before Micaiah. And he, he asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, read verse 16 here or listen it. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but truth in the name of the Lord? It appears that Micaiah has done this before. What has he done? Spoken in, with sarcasm. Spoken with sarcasm. Ahab didn't believe him one bit. So you can imagine just Micaiah saying, oh, go to victory, you will have battle, in a very sarcastic manner. You know, people who are keen to that, those kind of things, you can, you can tell who's being sarcastic and when they're not speaking in truth. Ahab picked up on this. And so you can tell just their history, just the funny exchanges that they've had. Ahab really did not like Micaiah. And so he tells him, tell me the truth. Stop, stop joking around. And he said in verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? What did Micaiah prophesy? That the sheep without the shepherd is pretty much saying that the king would die. King Ahab would die. And he would leave the nation of Israel without a shepherd. And so Micaiah is speaking what he usually speaks regarding God's judgment towards King Ahab. Now, verse 19. This is where, uh, this is where you guys will kind of uh, squirm a bit in your seat. 
Because we have come to the passage where it appears that God is acting out of character. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I am the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? He said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Did you guys hear that? Now, the Lord did not lie directly, but he sent a lying spirit to entice Ahab to fight. You know, in the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, the, it says that the, the spirit, the lying spirit, was actually, in fact, Naboth. Okay, it is the spirit of Naboth seeking revenge for his death. I don't believe that is the case. But what is taking place is that he is sitting there on his throne in the midst of angels. And one spirit says that he will actually be put a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets and also to successfully entice Ahab so he can fall at Ramoth Gilead. Why is this so troubling? Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says that God detests lying lips. So if God detests lying lips, why is he allowing a lying spirit to deceive man? Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie. <coughs> Which brings me to my first point, or the first defense, I should say, of God's attribute. And it is God's perfection. That God's perfection is still maintained in this story. Regardless of what you have read, his holy attribute has not been tainted. It may seem he is acting out of character, and his actions contradict what we read about his character elsewhere. 
But we have to understand one thing. You guys remember in Isaiah 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You guys were reminded last week that our motives, okay, our thoughts and our motives, they are filtered through a sinful heart. So we have a marred vision of, of not only life, but how we perceive life, how we see justice, how we see good and evil. God cannot fall because the Bible tells us that as well. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. In a book called The Summary of the Christian Doctrine, it states regarding God's communicable traits, such as his holiness, it says that that divine perfection by which he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and exalted above them in infinite majesty. But it denotes in the second place that he is free from all moral impurity or sin and is therefore morally perfect. In the presence of a holy God, man is deeply conscious of his sin. So how... Was he able to send a lying spirit by maintaining his perfection? I want you to notice one thing. The objects to whom the lying spirits have been sent to. That is key. The lying spirits were sent to ungodly men. These prophets were not prophets of God to begin with. Okay. It wasn't that they were walking in light and God covered their eyes so that they would walk in darkness. These were men who were already walking in darkness. And the king of Israel, King Ahab, was already blind in sin. guys remember <coughs> we see this elsewhere Romans chapter 1 and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind and to do what ought not to be done <coughs> God talking in Romans chapter 1 regarding the judgment of God on a depraved world. And it says in this particular section of Romans, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. It wasn't that God threw them to be disillusioned. What it's saying in this particular passage is God let them live how they were living currently. The sinful heart will continue to live in sin. That is the free will of the sinful heart. 
It is free to act as it pleases, but it will do so with everything contrary to the purpose and the will and the pleasure of God. So when it says God gave them up to a debased mind, God put his hands up, he says, pretty much to these, this group, you live how you would have lived regardless of my intervention. You see, the only intervention of God is regeneration. That is when God is active in changing the heart of man. So when God sent the lying spirit to the prophets and to Ahab, he, it was pretty much an enactment of his judgment on a people who would, who would have already done the exact same thing if God did not intervene. Regardless of what God would have said, King Ahab would have gone to Ramoth Gilead. So in that regard, God's perfection is still maintained. It is safeguarded. Because what he is doing here is demonstrating his judgment on, on, on souls and hearts that have rejected him. God is perfect. And we must never forget that. But another factor here strikes me in the story. <clears throat> Not about the nature of God, but the nature of man. What does Ahab do? How does King Ahab respond to these words? To the words that God sent a lying spirit and that he would surely fall in Ramoth Gilead. Total rebellion. King Ahab, even with what he has heard from Prophet Micaiah, decides to go to battle. He hears the judgment that is placed on him from Micaiah, and he decides to go anyway. Any normal human being would hear these words and flee the other direction. <clears throat> Not only King Ahab, but King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat, hearing the words of Prophet Micaiah, decides still to join hands with Ahab to fight against King Ben-Hadad. What is going on here? So verse 27, King Ahab puts Micaiah back in prison 
and he plans to return from the battle victorious. He is living in, in make-believe land right now. He is trying to take his destiny in his own hands. He is trying to actually deceive God. He is going to attempt to prove God wrong. You see in verse 30, he, he, he comes up with the ploy to actually deceive God. He tells King Jehoshaphat to remain in his kingly attire while King Ahab dresses like a common soldier to fight in the battlefield. Why would King Ahab do this? Why would he put himself in harm's way to be in the front lines when the king is, you know, in the back, protecting? Because every king knows this. Every battle is like chess. Once the king falls, you win the game. And so there was a bullseye on the kings, the opposing kings. This was how King Ahab was going to try to escape the judgment of God. <clears throat> He's going to disguise himself as a common soldier so that he will not have a huge target on him for being the king of Israel. This is the heart of man, guys. We look at King Ahab and just see just how deceitful and dishonest he is. But this is truly a picture, a snapshot of the heart of man. They hear the words of God and it does absolutely nothing. They hear the words of truth. And it drives them further and further away. This is the danger of sin. The power of sin. So this sinful heart is beyond sick. And it is continuously living in a disillusioned state. Thinking that it can stand a chance against the king of the universe. It reminds me of Psalm 53, verse 1 through 3, which was uh, echoed by Paul in Romans chapter 3. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So you may not see yourself in King Ahab, but guess what? King Jehoshaphat followed along. When he should have stood up to the truth, he followed along. Sin is a very scary thing. 
depravity of man. We have to recognize this. Recognize this about the flesh. And where did that leave King Ahab? Verse 34, it led to his ultimate demise. A certain soldier, soldier, drew his bow. And somehow, it landed on King Ahab. So a soldier just closed his eyes, drew his bow, and shot it in the air. And somehow, it penetrated through the weak point of King Ahab's armor. Talk about the sovereignty of God. If you think that is coincidence, you have not read the Bible enough. This was God's hand. Ahab tried to, to battle God and he lost. He bled to death in that battlefield. God's prophecy, God's oracle came true. He did indeed fall in Ramoth Gilead. A depraved heart, an unregenerate person's destiny will always lead to death, will always be death, I should say. And I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death. His death is indicative of the fact that everyone who rebels against God will be eternally separated from him. To be more theologically correct, will continually, forever and ever, face his red hot wrath you will never win against God if that is not only the state of Ahab's heart but that is the heart of every human being on this earth what hope is there It's like the the disciples of Jesus after hearing, you know, about the the rich man. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. They asked then, who then can be saved? Someone that, that harbors this kind of heart. How can they be saved? The gulf between God's holiness and man's utter depravity is so great. How can there be any reconciliation? I bring you guys good news today. It's a simple message. It is the simple message of the gospel. That bridge is grace. You cannot seek after God because your heart 
is continually rebelling against God. Your heart hates everything that God stands for. So a heart born into sin cannot seek after what is good. That is the case. God has to be the one who does the initiating. Did so by sending his son Jesus Christ, the epitome of his grace. It is Christ's blood that cleansed us from all unrighteousness. But here's the thing. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit moved inside your heart and opened your eyes to see your need for a Redeemer, and, and you saw for the first time the real state of your broken and fallen heart, God at that instant gave you a new heart. Open heart surgery. You are a new creation in Christ. And so with the new heart that God gave you, with that heart, now you are able. You are able to hear the words of God and comprehend it. You are, you are able to, to, to read the words of truth and accept it as such. You're able to love God. And to hate, despise evil. I hope what we see in, in, the, in the life of King Ahab, the sad life that he lived, and the, the, the really poor legacy he left behind. <clears throat> that that reminds us that we were once there if it weren't for God's holiness. I'm sorry, God's grace showering upon us. So may we come to Christ with thanksgiving. Because without him, without his intervention, without him giving us a new heart, we are hopeless. And so this is how there is union between a holy and perfect God, God who does not change, with sinful, fallen creatures such as us. All of that centered around Christ. Now I'm going to remind for you guys Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So as we sing the last song, I pray that we will just um, really meditate on God's goodness, that he truly saved us. Grace, that a holy and perfect God, such as the one that we worship, came down 
to save sinners such as us.